0: This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm Brandon Pollan, and I am, as always, joined by my fellow co-host, F. Scott Thiel. And today we have a very special guest joining us on a unique topic that has not really been featured too much in the PT podcast world, in which we'll be focusing on swimming. So just to give a little bit of background, I actually first learned how to swim my freshman year of high school from great instructors. And honestly, since before, I was absolutely terrified of the water before, as I had no idea how to swim. And how I learned before actually made me more afraid of the water and reluctant to try. But luckily, I found a good group of teachers that kind of brought me up the right way. And then I ended up joining the high school team the next year and swam for the remainder of high school. And, you know, and we personally felt that this population has not received a ton of coverage overall in the rehab world and the podcast world as well. And for that, we welcome a very special guest and Dr. John Mullen. Now, for those of you who don't know who Dr. Who Dr. John Mullen is, he's a physical therapist and a certified strength and conditioning specialist. And he is a world renowned expert and speaker in sports training and rehabilitation. He is also the owner of COR, in which elite level adult fitness, sports performance, and physical therapy are offered by world renowned experts designed to help people get the most out of themselves. Now, John, I realize I kept your bio pretty brief here, man, but <laughs> <laughs> he's just going. But is there anything that you'd like our listeners to know about you, man, that I didn't mention in the intro?
1: You know, my my favorite color is blue. I like walks on the beach, but I think other than that, that'll cover it all.
2: Excellent. Excellent. And I'd like to throw in a Go Boilers there, too, because uh, I have a lot of family that went to Purdue, so I kind of still follow them closely there, John. But for our audience who doesn't know a lot about swimming, myself included, uh, do you think you could give us a snapshot of the phases of a stroke?
1: Yeah, certainly. You know, first you have to think about, you know, what stroke we're looking at exactly. There's four main styles in the pool you have freestyle, backstroke, breaststroke, and butterfly. When most people are trying to break down a stroke or thinking of swimming, they're thinking of freestyle or front crawl if you're really from anywhere other than the United States. So the different phases we have is when the athlete is entering the water. So we have the initial entry. That's when the fingertips are entering the water. Then after the initial entry, they're coming through into the early catch as the hand is coming and pulling through the water, getting close to the eye level. You have the mid catch as the hand is you know perpendicular to the bottom of the pool or almost right underneath um, the eyes then you have the late catch as the hand is sweeping back getting ready for the exit so the hand is approaching you know the hip or the thigh you have the exit as that hand does exit the water then you have early recovery when the hands is starting to do that kind of circular motion as the hand is out of the water and behind the person the mid recovery as that elbow is high on the recovery and then the late recovery or you get back into that Initial entry, and that's pretty much the phase of the arm stroking cycle for freestyle. Um, obviously, there's the legs that are involved too. Um, you know, the leg patterns and all that don't have as much specifics as the arm patterns or as much, you know, um, common nomenclature, but you pretty much have a down kick and an up kick where the down kick, the legs going down, the up kick is the leg is going up, and that's about as far as kicking has been classified in freestyle, which is. Probably could use a little bit more um, specifics, in all honesty.
0: Yeah, and even so, just as a former swimmer too, just leaving the differences between that, the breaststroke kick and the butterfly kick. And to me, I've just been—it took me so much time to actually develop the motor control for butterflies So I thought thought that was interesting, and I feel I still probably feel don't have it down all the way, to be honest with you. But John, from your experience as a swimmer and from treating a lot of swimmers, what do you see? And what if you know the data as well, or what are some of the most common injuries or reasons that a swimmer needs rehab? And and, and does that vary by stroke that you've noticed?
1: Yeah, it does vary slightly by stroke. Um, however, the predominant injury in the sport of swimming is at the shoulders. Um, it's about 80 to 90% of swimmers will have shoulder pain throughout their career and about 60% will have a specific or classified injury. Um, and it's really a volume issue. You know, swimmers are taking millions of strokes throughout just one season. They're also working against resistance, and sometimes there's something swimming with poor technique and almost doing a, you know, near test over and over if they're pulling incorrectly through the water. So that leads to a lot of tendinopathies, tendinoses, and not many, you know, big acute injuries at the shoulder, but once again, it's that accumulation and overuse. Outside of the shoulder, the low back, is, you know, the next common spot for injuries. There is um, a lot of arching that can occur, especially in butterfly, like you were saying. You know, it's a technical and difficult stroke. So if an athlete is breathing too high, they're going to really, you know, go into a lot of lumbar extension over and over and over in that stroke. And that can go ahead and, you know, cause more low back pain. Also, you're doing flip turns, which is also known as tumble turns. Once again, putting more stress, potentially causing disc issues and stress there. Um, as far as, you know, what strokes can cause or increase other areas of, for you know, other stresses and injuries, the knees and the hips are really isolated to mostly breaststroke swimmers. Um, Breaststroke, also known as, you know, um, frog stroke, as some people say, it requires a lot of knee bending and rotation. Um, That rotation occurs mostly at the hip, but it does occur at the knee as well and can lead to a lot of medial knee pain. So issues where you might be getting um, some issues with the MCL, the medial meniscus and, and things like that. You know, outside of those body parts, you know, you can get you know hip um, impingements from breaststroke as well. Also, there can be neck issues that can occur due to the rotational element of breathing and freestyle. Um, but those are really the main injuries and spots that occur in swimming. And once again, almost all of them are from the overuse nature of the sport.
2: Yeah, John. Based on your experience and the research out there. Are you seeing much as far as coaches and therapists teaching swimmers for injury reduction? I know wellness and prevention is really starting to be a big theme lately. So I'd like to know what you see out there as far as uh, injury prevention or injury reduction
1: yeah I think coaches are starting to come around little by little, and as more research gets out there, luckily swimming there is a okay amount of research most of the most of it is done overseas, not in America, but they are starting to research things. I was with a group down in Portugal, and we were working on you know injury prevention protocols and how effective it was so you know, it's starting to become, like I said, more common. Coaches are starting to hear about it more. And unfortunately, I don't think therapists are doing a good job leading this way and getting out there to these teams. But luckily, strength coaches who, you know, can do a lot of help as well. We can all agree on that. They're getting to some of these clubs or there's some apps that are, you know, including injury prevention into the program. And luckily getting away from just band internal and external rotations as the, you know, you know the ultimate prevention program for swimmers. So it's one of those where swimmers are starting to do more prevention. They've been doing it for a while and they're finally getting away from just the band internal external rotations, thinking that's going to fix everything, at least the shoulders.
0: Sure. And John, kind of as a follow-up to that, just to kind of get your opinion on that and talking about prevention, you know, I granted, I realize that this is overall individualized based on the swimmer and many different factors, but, you know, overall, what are the big strategies that are ultimately the most effective for prevention for swimmers specifically that you found to be the most effective based on experience and research?
1: Yeah, I think the number one thing, and this is what gets tough for PTs, is biomechanics are are really huge. You know, it's hard to keep an athlete healthy if, like I was saying, if they have a poor catch. And if we go back to the phases I was talking about, if they're coming through with shoulder internal rotation so the thumbs leading the way and going across their midline during the mid catch, they're pretty much doing a near test for a million times. And that's going to wear out these these rotator cuff muscles over time. So it's one where biomechanics are huge. So if somehow you can get recordings, of video of your athlete swimming, that can help out improving and reducing the stress at the shoulder or whatever joint we're looking at. Um obviously that requires you to have access either to a pool or videos, or maybe you can discuss this with the coaches and, and maybe go with them and help them out along the way. But that really is, I think, the number one thing. Um, outside of that, like you said, individualization is key, but really working on it, improving the overused muscle tissue by doing soft tissue um, quality work to the posterior cuff. We find the posterior cuff gets beat up a lot because every time the athlete is doing a catch. They're doing a very fast internal rotation and then that muscle recoils and really can get tight and doing things to loosen up that posterior cuff can be huge. I'm a fan of uh, myofascial releases or some soft tissue there. You can also do things like the sleeper stretch. However, we don't want to lead to instability or hypermobility, which some of these athletes already have at that shoulder joint. Outside of that, you know, we find that improving scapular stability, scapular strength, um, you know, the normal middle, lower trap, serratus anterior strengthening combined with rotator cuff strengthening, um, particularly the posterior cuff can really be beneficial for a lot of these athletes.
0: Gotcha. No, I think those are some good ideas there, John. And you know, and as you said before, you know, obviously it would be ideal um, to get some video of kind of the stroke analysis in a pool with the equipment seated, But I don't think a lot of PTs in most outpatient facilities really have access to that. And, you know, for me, example, I'm a PT in an outpatient orthopedic clinic, and I don't have access to a pool or that either. And, and, you know, you kind of mentioned some of the muscles and stuff to work before. But what are some of the best overall land exercises that you found that kind of incorporate swimming moves into that? They kind of stimulate, you know, hip core control, overhead stability, and lower extremity and upper knee stroke coordination. Or like, what are your top exercises that you tend to use, to use the most in the clinic?
1: Yeah, you know, as far as mimicking the exact stroke, I, I actually don't mimic it 100% all the time, just because I think it's, it is so different out on land than the water. It's really, I think, impossible to. You know, you don't have ground reaction forces, and obviously you don't have the water and the variable resistances of water flowing through you. Um, however, if I am trying to really get across, you know, one biomechanical skill like a high elbow catch or maybe a leg position with the kick, I will get out the bozu or Swiss ball um, just so we can get them in a position where they can hopefully be horizontal and then we can hopefully get them into a very similar position there. Um, obviously, a lot of some teams will think, oh, we want to mimic the stroke as much as we can with triland to make them stronger so they'll do things like setting up a resistance band around a pole and then doing some high elbow pull throughs or just some low rows in the bent position or in the um, horizontal position. Um, But I often don't mimic that too much on dry land, just I feel like they get a lot of, you know, overuse there already. So a lot of what I'm doing is trying to improve those imbalances. And if we are trying to make a biomechanical skill, I do as best as I can to either one, have the athlete record video of themselves swimming and bring it to me. Two, try and communicate and reach out to that coach, maybe set a time up to go to that pool and watch them at practice, or just get on the you know communication line with that coach to see if you can get some videos somehow and somehow start to make that biomechanical change and help them out.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, John. As, as somebody who's not terribly knowledged on swimming, like addressing the imbalances and really trying to avoid the overuse since they're doing that already is just, it just makes sense to me. What strategies would you say you found most effective for training the swimmer for starts? Um, and are there certain drills that you use based on the stroke for starts as well?
1: Yeah. You know, if an athlete is, is trying to improve their start, it's, um, you know, it's very similar to um, a long jump. So we obviously want to make sure they have proper squatting mechanics. They have proper hip, knee, ankle alignment with those things. And then we're progressing into building up their squat strength to make sure that they can handle some plyometrics and repeated jumps properly. Once they're able to, you know, I know NSCA wants one and a half times back squat strength before you start doing plyometric work. Um, we work towards that, but we, we do implement that before that occurs. And then we're working on, like I said, long jump mechanics. And then later on, we're also working on not just being able to do a long jump, but trying to mimic the exact foot position. Right now in most swimming pools, they have kickback um, pads. So in a on a start on the block they actually have a piece not only for the front leg but for the back leg to nice. press off as well as well so you can actually have them practice with their front foot on the ground maybe their back foot on the wall or on a bench and then we want to have their hands involved too so maybe we'll set up two heavy medicine balls next to them and try to teach them how to integrate not just their legs but all four limbs and that's how they can really get and improve their explosiveness off the block outside of that entering the water at the correct angle, entering cleanly, knowing when to start that kick are huge components, which sometimes are out of, you know, our expertise as, you know, strength coaches. And if, like you said, Brandon, if you can't get to the pool, how are you going to change that? Um, But maybe just mentioning it to the coach, seeing what the athlete knows about what they're doing. And then obviously there's a lot of research, like I said, out there on our site, on PubMed, as I'm sure everyone knows they can look into. And you're trying to improve these other aspects of the biomechanics.
0: Yeah, no, I think those are some good points there, John. And, you know, I'm going to switch here a little bit and and ask. So now we've kind of assumed that, you know, as most PTs are going to be in an area where they're not going to have access to the water and such. But I'm going to pretend now we have that small percentage that actually do. So someone who perhaps does have access to a pole and has that equipment. And with that being said, what have you found have been some of the most effective strategies for training, improving stroke technique in the swimmers within the water? So with freestyle, backstroke, breaststroke, and fly. Yeah, I think
1: one thing swimming is, you know, at such a a great disadvantage at for improving biomechanics is having immediate feedback. Um, So somehow trying to allow that swimmer to have immediate feedback can help them during the early phases of learning a biomechanical skill. So whether it's having a mirror on the bottom of the pool so they can watch themselves, whether it is trying to, you know, use auditory stimulation by, you know, making a noise or making a a cue with your hands to give them a visual feedback of that they're doing the new correction that they're trying to implement is really key so then they don't have to stop and break up the components more and more. Um, some other things that can be helpful are, you know, like I said, video recording, having them watch it afterwards, having another athlete in the water so they can learn from that athlete that has the correct skill, or actually getting in the water with them so you can observe all the different angles of the stroke or manually manipulate them in the correct way. Sometimes I will get in the water with our athletes. Um, you know, I'm that goofy PT that hops in the pool still and is underwater blowing bubbles, trying to watch them swim, but it's one of those, you know. You know. know you got to know all the intricacies of the stroke sometimes you have to manually move them in the right position and it's the same thing as on land it's just there's a few more constraints and issues with being in the pool but it's still very similar ways where we want to give visual auditory kinesthetic feedback and then once again at the beginning make it immediate and then later on you can give that feedback less and less and less as they're acquiring and mastering that skill
2: yeah, so kind of breaking down more portions of, of swimming in general here, but what are some of the most effective training uh, tools that you found for teaching swimmers on their turns?
1: Yeah, um, as far as teaching them on the turns, um, a lot of issues that the athlete will have is that they're, one, either bobbing too much underwater, or they're pausing too much before they initiate the turn. Um So one thing that we'll do is making sure that they are using the cross on the bottom of the pool, using that skill so they can keep their head down, not looking up for the wall constantly, and realizing that the turn is a great advantage if you can do properly because the fastest points of any swimming race are going to be the start When you're going to be exploding off the block, as well as pushing off the wall, you actually have the ground there to increase your meters per second much more than when you're swimming. So you have to get into that turn, use it as a positive aspect of your race, and then realize that kicking and doing these things will actually slow you down immediately off the wall. So teaching patience with the swimmer so they learn to allow themselves to push off the wall and then... Go ahead and initiate their dolphin kicks, and once again master the dolphin kicks in short course yard swimming. So in the Olympics, you have long course swimming, which is a 50 meter pool. United States, most of you know the season for high school college it's short course yards, which is called short course swimming. So the turns in short course swimming, because it's only 25 meter, 25 yards, you have even more turns it's even more crucial to be good at underwater dolphin kicks and I would say the most important thing. So being able to master that is really key. Um, obviously, and if you're doing a backstroke turn, knowing where the flags are, using just once again all the different awarenesses of the pool can just help out a swimmer approach the wall quickly, be aggressive with it, and carry that speed off the wall.
0: So, John, you know, those are some really good points. And, you know, now that we've kind of gone through turns for kind of all of these different strokes, I got to ask what are some of the most common errors that you see regarding finishes and what strategies have you found to be most effective for training the swimmer to kind of improve and hone when finish at the end of the race?
1: Yeah. So, when uh, you know, the most common errors for swimmers when they are finishing into the wall is either looking up or breathing into the wall. Um, oftentimes, swimmers, you know, kind of lose their position in the pool or they're just not able to think clearly due to fatigue. So, they aren't, you know, concentrating on the main goal, which is to finish as quickly as as possible to the wall. So the best strategy is just to kind of keep the head down, making sure that they're focusing on the black line at the bottom of the pool so their neck is in a nice neutral position. And then to try and limit that air as much or as best as possible at the end. You know, one of the top swimmers right now, Caleb Dressel in short course yard swimming will actually do a no breather on his last 25 on the 100 fly. And I think that is you know a remarkable skill that not everyone can do. But I think we can learn from him and just how much maintaining a neutral head position can help reduce drag so you can finish as quickly as possible to the wall for the achieving the best time.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I gotta be honest, man, as soon as you said that, that sounds brutal.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, like I said, not not for everyone to say the least, but it's one of those where, you know, once you're at that level and you're able to, you know, maintain and realize that you can do some of these things and stay calm during it as we all know, the body can do pretty amazing things. And as far as, you know, holding one's breath, we are usually much more capable than what we realize, or we can do much more than what we know. But obviously you have to progress into that. So, you know, if you're a young swimmer or someone that's not used to holding your breath at the end, just try and go, you know, three, four strokes out without taking a breath at the end, and then try to, you know, elongate that and go more and more as you practice and become better at that skill.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really good point, John. And, you know, something I got to ask then kind of with that. So I know there's a lot of uh, these good tips that, of course, we need to keep in mind for a swimmer, especially as they're ending the race and they're fatigued and they want to get there as quick as possible to get the fastest time. Um, But what are some drills that you would recommend besides what you've mentioned before, kind of that could be practiced within the pool that kind of help simulate proper finishes?
1: Yeah, you know, as, as far as drills, I'm not sure if there's really that many that a swimmer can do other than just really trying to make sure every finish no matter if you're going easy during warm-up cooling down at the end or during your main set it's just practicing holding that breath at the end and finishing and trying to attack that wall um, this will not only you know condition you to be able to hold your breath for a little bit at the end but it will also help you hone in that stroke rate and that strength length at, length at the end Most of us remember that Michael Phelps butterfly event where he was against um, the Serbia's uh, Millard Kavic and Kavic started to lift his head up a little bit at the wall and Phelps was able to drive strong into the wall and finish first for one of his many golds. And I think not having the the proper training and knowing your exact stroke count and having the perfect finish. So finishing with the perfect stroke length is what really led to Phelps being able to take that title combined with Mr. Kavic lifting his head up just Just a little bit at the end, causing that extra drag. So really just making sure every time you're heading into the wall, you're pretending like it's really, you know, your main event or your Olympic race. So you can hone in that skill. And we all know practice makes perfect.
0: Yeah. And I think that really brings forth the point again that, you know, especially in regards to swimming, um, that, you know, the starts, turns and finishes really is where a lot of the action happens in a race. And and John, I'm sure you could go more into that detail, but that's something I was taught in swimming too, that, you know, of course we want to work on stroke, but also working on the starts, turns, and finishes is really what separates most of the top swimmers. At least that's kind of my impression. I don't know if you have anything to say that's different on that.
1: No, I think it's huge, especially in short course yard swimming, where you can go 15 meters off the wall with your dolphin kicks. You know, a lot of times races are, are definitely won on those underwater kicks. And you know, as far as starts and turns go, it's an easy way to make a, a, a change in speed and to you know really beat your competitors because that's going to be your fastest. Point in the pool, the start and the turn, you'll have the highest velocity. So if you can really capitalize on that, you're able to carry that speed a little bit more. You'll really start to make some big changes and some big benefits. And like you said, you know, win win a lot of more races.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And then now, you know, John, I want to switch gears now because we've been talking a lot about you know, pool, short course, long course yards. But I kind of like to switch gears and to kind of go more into the open water and triathlon training and realm of things. And, you know, from your perspective, you know, how is open water training different between kind of short course and long course pool training?
2: Yeah.
1: So in open water, you have a few main differences. Obviously, the main one is that you don't have lane lines and you don't have you know a, a black line on the bottom of the pool to help you really know and navigate yourself into where you're going. So one main thing that you have to keep in mind with open water is that you will have to do some forward sighting, which is more or less lifting your head in the water to look forward to make sure that you're headed on track um, and not adding any extra distance to the race that you're doing. Um, so learning how to do that safely and quickly is really key. Obviously, when you are breathing and swimming, you're putting your shoulders under stress and sighting adds even more stress to the shoulder. So it's really crucial that you are able to do that correctly. But nonetheless, it is an important task that you need to achieve. Um, Another thing with open water that you need to learn how to deal with is obviously waves that occur. Obviously, um, there are different realms of open water. You can be in you know, a lake where there's not many lakes or you can be out in the ocean. But nonetheless, you will be dealing with more waves than that you'll have in the pool where the lane lines are eating some of the waves up. So learning how to deal with those extra waves in the water, not letting them disrupt your stroke. Or if you get an extra wave and more water goes in your mouth, learning how to deal with that calmly and not freak out and you know, start to have issues with breathing or concerns of losing your breath at all.
0: Yeah, I think those are a lot of good points there. And, you know, John, I'm going to ask you a question here because, you know, I don't really see too many triathlon athletes much at all. But when I rarely do, a lot of them most commonly see that swimming is their weakest component of all the three between, you know, biking and the running proportions of the triathlon. And I guess my question to you would be, what are some of the, what are the most helpful strategies and tips that you would recommend um, to a person who's training for a triathlon in regards to the swimming route that you kind of haven't mentioned already?
1: Yeah, you know, I think like anything, you got to get in the pool and you got to be working on your technique. So, a lot of times, triathletes are used to training on their own or not with a coach. And for running and biking, where, yeah, there are biomechanical things to address, but most of you have some inherent skill in that already from doing it as a youth, or it's more ingrained in just the human motor programming. In swimming, I really think if you're a novice, you need to find a coach that can help you out to make sure that you are, one, doing things correctly like having the right body position and the right breathing, and then teaching you how to use those arms and legs as a unit and not you know working extra hard to not get anywhere further. Because in triathlon training and triathlons in general, you just need to get through that swim with maintaining energy and maintaining your position. And if you're able to swim fast, but you're wasting all this energy, it's not going to be productive to a great triathlon. So make sure that you find a coach that One understands open water swimming, understands triathlon swimming, so you can be working with them to improve your biomechanics and more importantly, be efficient in the pool. So, by the time you enter, even if you're not in first place, you have your energy in the tank left to be able to tackle the bike and then the run with appropriate speeds.
0: Yeah, I know that's a really good point, making sure you're kind of training efficiently and effectively with the right biomechanics and such. So, you really kind of conserve energy to save for lack of a better word, the gas for the rest of the race. That's a really good point. That's something I've even learned too from running myself, because I've definitely made a few errors when I've gone all out the first two mi- first mile or two of the five k, and then the last mile, I'm absolutely dying. So it's it's a very true statement. So I couldn't agree more on that. And, and you know, John, I'd like to go to back a little bit and talk about something that was mentioned before in in regards to prevention. And you really did give some good advice. And of course, like you said before, being able to educate students, athletes, and coaches. Is So very important to this process. But I'd like to kind of target a different audience now. And I'd like to know what, in your opinion, is the most effective way to educate the masses and the community on prevention related to swimming related injuries.
1: Yeah, so obviously injury prevention is not the most exciting topic, even to elite athletes. You know, most of them realize that injuries can derail your career, but nonetheless, it's not nearly as exciting as talking about things that can enhance their performance, as well as, you know, nutrition and things like that. So I think coming with the angle that not only Well, the things that, you know, therapists and rehabilitation specialists can help you with will prevent injuries, but in almost every scenario will also help improve performance. So if a swimmer, you know, you're talking to them, you're presenting on, you know, just how to build up strong shoulders for maximal performance could be a nice presentation topic that, uh, you know, a rehab specialist could do at a swim club to once again, instead of go down the route of swimmer shoulder go down the route of strong shoulders for maximal performance, because if you can get across to them that, yeah, we're going to be strengthening the rotator cuff and stabilizing the shoulder blades, and that's going to help injury prevention, you know, that's not nearly as exciting as, yeah, we're going to provide some shoulder stability, some rotator cuff stability as well, or rotator cuff balance, and that's going to allow you to use your main propulsive muscles in the water, like your, your pecs and your lats, the big, big powerful muscles to actually pull you through the water and be faster, that's going to get that message across a lot better than, you know, the old, oh, we're just going to do some band, you know, injury prevention. And even if that's not what you're going to teach them, that's what they're going to probably think ahead of time that, oh, we already do band stuff for injury prevention. What else do we need to do? So I think trying to take the angle of we're going to help maximize your performance. And then at the same time in the back of your head, as the therapist or rehab specialist, know that you're going to prevent injuries too. That's the best way to, I think, get in the door. And then once you're in the door, just opening up and continuing the lines of communication with the coach, they know that you're not going to be someone that's going to say, oh, you have, you know, A two out of 10 pain, well, just take six weeks off of the pool training and you'll be fine. Instead, you know, you're that therapist or the rehab specialist that says, okay, you have two out of 10. Well, let's, you know, remove the paddles and make these few modifications, but still get to practice, still stay in shape, and let's get this pain, you know, improved while you are maintaining your your pool swimming skills as well.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really important message. And I think that's something that works kind of for any athlete in general, because you're right, prevention does seem to be a term that usually most athletes tend to kind of roll their eyes with. Um, But it's true that I, and I agree that, you know, really putting it in perspective to what's important for them, and this is going to help them perform better. This is going to help them jump further, run faster, swim faster, whatever the case may be, is so much more powerful than us saying the word prevention, which is unfortunate, but I I agree that that's kind of the truth in this day and age.
1: Yeah, definitely. And if you are going to be at the team, I mean, it depends who your audience is. If you're talking to parents, if you're talking to coaches, if you're talking to middle school, high school athletes, but, you know, let's, I mean, we can look at, you know, American football. I mean, all these athletes, they know how bad concussions are, but You know, if you ask them during the game or they're going through concussion protocol, they don't want to do it, okay? Because they know they want to be out there. They want to be doing their sport. And that's what's fun to them. And that's what, for them, you know, gets them paid, obviously. But as far as the middle school, high school athletes, you have to be able to angle it and that, you know, this is going to get you doing the things better that you like, that you enjoy. And that's hopefully going to get those ears opening up a little for what you have to say then, but also down the line.
0: Yeah, no, that's great, John. And, You know, and John, I'm going to kind of ask you kind of a random question here. Um, You know, what are some of the most important lessons that you've learned from treating and coaching swimmers over the years?
1: Yeah, I think like, you know, swimmers are, are like most athletes in that if you're able to speak their lingo, if you are able to understand, you know, their sport and their sporting demands, they're much more receptive. So the more and more I work with swimmers, the more I realize how much they appreciate you um or just me just being able to talk the the swimming talk, to be able to talk the swimming lingo and showing some interest within it. You know, we, we've had other therapists here and other trainers at our staff, you know, go to swim meets and go to swim practice and some of them have a football background, but just doing those little things goes such a long way. And I think swimming is a, a sport where obviously it's not in the main culture like, you know, football or soccer or baseball. So if you don't have that knowledge, it's okay but you just have to put a little effort in, get out there, show that you're trying to learn and you can really get on a much better rapport with the patients, the parents and the coaches especially.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's great, John. And you know, and thank you so much for, you know, all the content that you really provided to us today because I think I've definitely learned a lot of new things and I frankly wish I knew a lot of this when I was a swimmer back in the day because I feel like I would have not sucked so much, but but for, but for but for that matter, you know, we like to end each episode with this final question because we're so curious to everyone's thoughts, and and the question is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, um, whether that be DPT or other healthcare provider related, which aspect would you change, and how would you change it?
1: Well, I think that's uh, that's a great question and a, a pretty complex one or a pretty deep question. Um, just off the top of my head, I'd probably say if I could change one thing, you know, I'll stick with you know DPT profession since that's the one I know uh, best. I would say that most D- DPT programs could really do a much better job with patient communication and just patient education in general and how not only to you know teach them about our profession, but once again how to get people to be compliant. Having maybe a little bit more of a sales approach or a way to communicate clearly with them, the reasons why we're doing things would really help out a lot of therapists, especially young therapists, because we get out of school, you have all this educational background, but you know you have to be able to t- change that or turn that corner from being able to speak the PT mumbo jumbo to being able to clearly, clearly communicate that to the patient, and then also be able to convince them that why this is important and get them to continue to come in for not only improving their discomfort, but to improve their movement d- dysfunctions from having it come back again and to prevent other injuries from coming back. and.
0: That should be something that's learned more in the clinical experience realm, or something that should be taught a little bit more on the academic side, or maybe a little bit of both.
1: Yeah, probably a little bit of both. I think obviously, you know, putting it all in the clinicals is tough because you get so many different clinical experiences and different mindsets behind it. Um, so I think having something at the, you know, actually in school would be helpful. Maybe having, you know, uh, someone on the business. Realm at most of these universities, they have a business school or some sort of school in that, you know, similar functionality. Have someone coming in and be able to talk about some of these things would, I think, really help out physical therapy compliance and also physical therapy buy in for our patients so they can see and, you know, really get the full value of the skills that we have. Yeah, no,
0: I think that's a good point. And for any listeners who are listening at this point, if you guys don't know, um, there's a couple of therapists that I'd actually recommend that are really good resources um, on that, that have really good, easily and accessible content. Um, I'm not sure if you, if I don't know, John, if you've heard of um Paul Goff or Greg Todd?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I have. Uh, so I, I've certainly have followed along to their online podcast and material. So they do, you know, some really great things and great, I'd say- thought production and thought the discussion, which is really huge. So, you can, you know, take a look at just everything that you're doing and, you know, realize what are some things that you could do better.
0: Yeah. And for sure. And for those of you who want it, who are kind of curious or never heard of these guys, what I'll do is I will post the link um, in our podcast show notes to their podcast and stuff because they really provide some really good stuff. And I'll throw in Jerry Durham's in there because Jerry Durham does focus a lot more on the patient experience um, because I think those are some critical points. And I, I agree that soft skills um are definitely something that is not really emphasized as much, but I also understand depending on certain things it can be really hard to implement that, depending the other limitations and deadlines they have to meet. So I I, I'm, I don't know if the, I don't know the best way to do it. I understand both sides, but I, I think I agree with you. I think that is an important thing because as a new grad myself, I was there too. <laughs> I felt like I knew all this technical yeah. knowledge, but I really wasn't able to sell it in a way that actually got buy-in and that's why it was Mm -hmm. really hard initially so i think once you get that and once you learn enough once you fail enough it becomes easier but i definitely agree there's there should be a better bridge in my opinion now what that exactly is i'm not going to pretend to be an expert on that because i'm really not but there needs to be something for sure
1: definitely and you know like you said you know just being able to do it more and more like those young therapists that's you know what you really need to do to be better at it. So maybe having some part during subjective interviews or subjective components of school could be helpful. So you're used to you know making requests or you know telling patients things. Obviously in PT school it's hard to get that true experience because you tell your other student or another student or your professor, oh yeah, you need to come to PT for you know four sessions. Um, so two times for two weeks and they're going to agree to it because everyone in PT school thinks PT is the best, but not everyone has that type of mindset. So, it's important to try and bend your mind to be able to adapt to the person that's sitting there right in front yeah, of you. Yeah,
0: know that's a really, really good point. And, and, and John, where can people find you online and on social media if they want to kind of reach out or follow your stuff?
1: Yeah. So, if you're looking for swimming-related content, uh, swimmingscience.net, um, Swimming Science on Twitter and Facebook, and we're starting to get the Instagram going there is where you can find a lot of information on, you know, rehab stuff for PT prevention for, or sorry, rehab, rehab and PT stuff for swimming, as well as some performance stuff as well. Um, as far as uh, my clinic is in Santa Clara, California, it's core, um, just trainingcor.com, um, And then most of our um, social media handles for the physical therapy and training accounts is core smash, core smash, C-O-R-S-M-A-S-H.
0: Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It's always a pleasure.
1: Yeah, really appreciate it and keep up the good work, okay? Thank you.
0: Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content.
2: If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at H-E-T podcast, on Instagram, H-E-T podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com.